0: The following content is explicit. It's Tuesday, June 12th, 2018. From Slate. It's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. So we know who Donald Trump thinks are losers. He's called George Will a loser. He's called Rosie O'Donnell a loser. Just like Richard Belzer a loser, Michael Forbes a loser. Roger Stone was once called a loser, now he's back in the fold. Glenn Fittich Scotch and Salon Magazine, loser, loser. I've got a pine. one has aged well, one hasn't. Karl Rove, loser. Russell Brand, loser. Jonah Goldberg is a loser. Loser's is, is not a strong enough term. John McCain and Charles Krauthammer, both losers. Now, he said that before both were diagnosed as terminal, but I'm sure he sees a causal relationship between his words and their health. Chuck Todd, real loser. The entire American economy as well. Just listen to this. With one country, we have... billion
1: in trade deficits, we can't lose. You could make the case that they lost years ago. But when you're down $375 billion, you can't lose.
0: So this raises the question, who does Donald Trump think are the winners? If Politico Magazine and Share and Vanity Fair's Grading Carter are loser, 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 then where are all the winners? Today, we got a clue. I wonder what you would say to the group of people who have no ability whatsoever to hear or to see this press conference, the 100,000 North Koreans kept in a network of gulags. Have you betrayed them by legitimizing the regime in Pyongyang?
1: No, I think I've helped them because I think things will change. I think I've helped them. There's nothing I can say. Uh, All I can do is do what I can do. We have to stop the nuclearization. We have to do other things, and that's a very important thing. So at a certain point, hopefully you'll be able to ask me a much more positive question or make a statement. But uh, not much I can do right now. At a certain point, I really believe he's going to uh, do things about it. I think, they, I think they are one of the great winners today,
0: that large group of people that you're talking about. I think ultimately they're going to be one of the great winners as a group. There you have it. The 100,000 North Koreans and gulags, those are the winners. They would not want to trade places with Mark Cuban or Russell Brand. Those guys are both losers. The Gulag people, 100,000 of them, they are the champions. And as Trump also said, they may one day be working in beautiful beachfront resorts because that's what he looks at when he sees North Korea. And when North Korea halts its missile testing, it will have a beach, and you can put a condo there, set it, actually set it. And on the show today, I want to uh, spend my spiel not looking at the freewheeling things, the -the off-the-cuff answers that he said in his press conference in Singapore today, because those, of course, have the quality of the fifth grader who didn't read the book, asked to do the book report. For instance, just a for instance, I'm not going to dwell on this, but he was asked, how long will it take North Korea to denuclearize? And he said this. I think we will do it as fast as it
1: can be done scientifically, as fast as it can be done mechanically. I don't think, uh, I mean, I've read... Horror stories, it's a 15-year process, okay? Assuming you wanted to do it quickly, I don't believe that. I think whoever wrote that is wrong. But there
0: will be a point at which when you're 20% through, you can't go back. And then he mentioned that he had an uncle who was a professor at MIT, and that MIT sent him a book about his uncle, and that he and his uncle talked nuclear a lot. He said that. It's not worth dwelling on. What I want to do and what I want to look at in the spiel are the actual words that he and his team wrote out beforehand, his prepared remarks, the insight those words give us into the summit. But before I do that in the spiel, let me just say that right here, right now, today, we have posted our fifth episode of the Upon Further Review podcast. This episode is a Boston Sports Talk radio show. It's Dougie and the Dunk, and they're broadcasting in a universe that doesn't exist where the Patriots haven't been to a single Super Bowl in the last 20 years. This is the last episode of the Upon Further Review series. It was always meant to be a five-episode series. In a way, it marks the final commitment for the book project I've been working on for two and a half years, The Upon Further Review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History, that book, there is still publicity to do. Today I'm going on the show The Opposition with Jordan Klepper on Comedy Central. You can see me there, for instance. But the writing is in, the podcasting is in, the main publicity push is done and all before Father's Day. Not a coincidence. I have not used the gist really to hit you over the head with the hard sell. I don't think too much. Maybe I haven't even done that enough. Maybe you haven't heard about this. Upon further review, book, 31 chapters, authors tackling the greatest what-ifs in sports history from what if Muhammad Ali got his draft deferment to what if football redeemed too boring in 1899. So I just want to use this space to mention it and to thank all the people who worked with me on that great podcast. If I know anything about you, the listener, you know how to listen to a podcast. So that alone convinces me that maybe you would like, upon further review, episodes one through five are up there in what's sure to be the finest sports what-if podcast downloadable today. So on to the show, and it is the Trump statement spiel. But first, Clint Watts has spent a lifetime defending our country from international terrorism in the Army, in the FBI. And then guess what? One day he found, much like The secret to nailing that impossible dive or the triple ollie or that archipageo that had been eluding us, the seeds to United States information catastrophe, it was in us the whole time. Clint Watts is a former FBI agent, a U.S. Army officer. He's been on the show before talking about his testimony before Congress. He is also, we should say, because academic credentials are important, the Robert A. Fox Fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's program on the Middle East and a senior fellow at the George Washington University. But his new book, and this brings him here now, is Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Hey, Clint, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I want to definitely get to the Russians and the fake news, the, the overall existential problem of fake news. But let's talk about one terrorist who you dealt with. Who was Omar Hamami?
2: Yeah, yeah. Omar uh, was an American. He's from Daphne, Alabama. One of the more interesting stories of the war on terror because... He was a foreign fighter and he traveled abroad to pursue jihad, but he chose Somalia instead. Yeah. This is at a time in the mid 2000s when most people were going to Iraq. Some would go to Afghanistan, but he was an American that went to Somalia. And what was interesting is he went to join the Islamic Courts Union originally, and it dissolved under uh, the Ethiopian invasion, U.S. pressure, a lot of different things. And he became part of a group known as Al Shabaab, which was
0: quite violent. How many um, adherents? How many American adherents were there in his organization, or Al Qaeda, or Al Qaeda in the Maghreb, or one of the Maghreb, or one of the uh, other Al Qaeda affiliates?
2: Small. I would put it at a hundred or less. Yeah. You know, and Somalia actually drew, drew the most, and to this day, we're sometimes. Uh, ISIS overshadows our thinking. Al-Shabaab actually drew maybe per capita the most Americans per year at one point. Right.
0: Because tell me if this is why, but there's a big Somali community, especially in the upper Midwest and Minnesota. So they would have ancestral ties there, yeah. although this guy's from Alabama.
2: Yeah, it really went to the diaspora communities around the world. So Al-Shabaab drew from them very significantly. In the U.S., we had several of them that it, it went back to the, the famine in Somalia. And so Omar drifted into Somalia but he took a very uh, wild route. His story is fascinating. He went to Toronto first to become more adherent, live in a Muslim community, then he went to Cairo because he wanted to study the Quran, and then from there he made the jump to Somalia. So it was a very extended sort of radicalization recruitment pathway into jihad.
0: Is there this isn't exactly what your interaction with him was, but along the way were there Maybe do you think inflection points where someone could have gotten to him or, I mean, someone could have convinced him not to be radicalized, uh, be it in Canada or Egypt? Not from a government
2: perspective, but he had friends. He actually had a friend who went with him, I believe, to Toronto. Uh, He had other family members. So he was married, you know, at one point and, and sort of left that family behind. So a lot of the typical levers we talk about for countering violent extremism were maybe there and they just... Had no impact. And I, I think that's pretty important to remember that some of these guys are just committed, and they're going
0: to go. Who were you working for when he came across your radar?
2: Yeah, I was writing a blog. At this point, I had moved out of the government space because the counterterrorism in government spaces just wasn't working. So I believe it was 2010 I started writing a blog. I worked as a consultant in Boston. A friend of mine, Will McCants, told me to set up a blog it was called Selected Wisdom that's where my goofy Twitter handle comes from and it, I, the whole idea well of the,
0: back in the day before we knew that we should just use our right. right. Twitter before we, it's not fair before yeah.
2: we knew like oh just call you, yourself yeah. by your name They'll figure it out anyway yeah, yeah yeah so the idea of the blog was to write about alternative sort of like futures on terrorism and counterterrorism and then I was trying to amplify other people I thought were doing really good work in the open source you know outside of government and that's when I started interacting with them I'd written some blog post about Omar and he, like most jihadists and other people in our, our nation's government at this point, are extreme narcissists on social media. Yeah, And he would read just about everything that was produced by him uh, about him. And so I bumped into him there on Twitter, and he was, he was tweeting basically as himself.
0: When you, know, when you knew you had him as an audience, how did your blog posting change? I wanted to create engagements with him. I wanted him to talk to me. And that's something you can't do when you're
2: in the government. If I was in the government space, I would not be able to just sit and try and talk to a terrorist on Twitter. There's all sorts of rules. Chain of command. Chain of command. Yeah. You know, people would be very nervous. But at my house, I could just do it. Yeah. And he wanted to talk to me. You know, he was constantly reaching out. And this is public. You know, it's a public fashion. In fact, it's still on Twitter today. You can go look at it to not only myself, but academics, people in the West that were drawing a large audience and even people in the Arab world. And he would try and tweet sometimes in Arabic. He would even use Somali and he would talk in English. But he wanted to get his story out because, and this is the essential part, he was compromised. He was in trouble. Uh, He went from being the YouTube rap star of Al-Shabaab to being on the run from Al-Shabaab and being hunted. And I think he thought every time he engaged, he was a a self promoter, and he was getting the word out, and he was also trying to draw a, a following to himself. Right. So, so he was trying to win hearts and minds in Somalia.
0: But also, and you use the acronym CRIME, and the E in that stands for ego. One of the reasons that these uh, terrorists or would be jihadists put themselves out there is because they think their word is very important, and you need to play on that.
2: Right. You know, you learn this in interviewing and interrogation, or if you're a journalist compromise, revenge, ideology, money, ego is crime. The acronym and he wanted you to believe that he was really about ideology but yes. it was mostly about ego he he thought of himself as like a future bin laden you know in a way and he would pontificate he'd write up his bio and hundreds of pages long part 1 you know, and then he would add sure. a part two later. I mean, the guy is, you know, roughly 30 years old. Would it
0: be in the, you know, Bin Laden wrote in kind of the high Arabic style, no. right? No. He, he did not know Arabic. This yeah. was
2: English and sloppy. Probably and I God. used to jab with him. I was like, you could use a good editor. Because yeah. he, would, he would always say, go back and read my bio. And I'm like, man, I don't have enough time, you know, to go read your now, bio. Now,
0: to what end? What were you trying to do? And what officials were you hoping or did you know would somehow find out what you were doing and either try to catch him or use him to leverage him to catch up?
2: I figured the government would do whatever they needed to do with it. What I wanted to do was make other potential foreign fighters that are on the horizon not want to go to Somalia. Because right. we were always talking about we got to tell these guys uh, their ideology is misguided. And yeah. it never worked. I never believed in it. The most effective ways – I was reading a lot of behavioral economics back then – to get people to move away something, from something that's not good for them is to have a former, which is someone who's a former member of the group. So we – you know, tobacco – what, mm-hmm. Do you remember the guy with the voice box? Right. I knew Omar was lost, but I saw him as a great vehicle for anybody that was a fence sitter that's thinking about going to see a guy being hunted publicly on social media by his own terrorist group. That's a home run. You don't have to do anything. Just keep him engaged and keep him in the conversation. So I would specifically write things about his plight, and he would want to correct him or add to it, and yeah. I would just keep adding it to my blog. And it was basically – a diary almost that I was writing for him of kind of what he was going through and then what it reveals about these terrorist groups that are not very unified. They really have a lot of cracks inside them.
0: How did it all shake out with Omar?
2: Omar was killed. You know, I I talked back and forth with Omar. He would go dark sometimes. I think he, one of the things Shabab did was, and this is interesting, was to take uh, the cell phone chargers. Mm -hmm. They would raid, you know, places, take the cell phone chargers. You couldn't charge your phone, then you're off the grid. They'd shut down cell towers. So sometimes he'd go dark. And then ultimately about 10 months later, uh, during our conversations, he would engage with the academics. Uh, he actually live tweeted an assassination attempt against him and would post pictures of him getting shot in the neck. And I think it was about a month or two later, he was killed.
0: They hunted him down and killed him. What was this, 2007? No, this was uh 13. If I ask you then, as you're doing your security job and uh, talking to this terrorist— Hey, how big a concern is Russia and what Russia is doing? What would you have said? I
2: wouldn't care. I wouldn't even know about it. I, mean, I wasn't tracking it. I'd seen the stuff in Ukraine.
0: And they did that big attack on Estonia by then. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And I, I'd seen it with Georgia. So I was aware of it in the cyberspace in terms of just warfare. But we were all ISIS from 13 to 15, 16. That's what – that was the majority of everybody wanted to talk about ISIS and tracking ISIS guys versus al-Qaeda guys going into right. Iraq and Syria.
0: We convinced ourselves that Russia – could be contained if we just had the will to contain it. And that's the big thing that changed. not like Russia got better just due to these bizarre set of circumstances. We had a major party candidate and then a president who not only didn't care about containing it, uh, emboldened them.
2: Yeah, the weird twist is I think uh, both the Bush administration, Obama administration saw it as we can be friends with Russia. No one saw what was coming and no one thought They would be bold enough to do it. I think that's the hubris part of why we missed it.
0: Well, to be fair to Obama in that moment, was Russia really the threat if we had just done the de minimis security work to keep them from threatening us? We were weak against Russia when they went into Georgia. We didn't really
2: do much, right? And we're talking Mm -hmm. about NATO and, you know, alliances. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were pushing.
0: This is like last months of the Bush administration, beginning of Obama. They go into Crimea.
2: We do nothing. Yeah. So to Putin's credit, he very much understands push until you're pushed back. Right. And he just keeps marching forward. And he does to this day because there's no one stopping him.
0: Now, were they smart at what they were doing in the beginning and got smarter, or it was just a a real-world experiment? Lots of A-B testing, and whatever worked, that's what they pursued. They
2: have the opposite mindset of us. When they're doing disinformation, they don't try and figure it all out first before they move forward. Our approach in everything is a marketing approach. We go we want to sell this product to this consumer. How do we do it? And we arrange it. They do what I call reconnaissance by fire.
0: We have the model of who we we want to get to. And then we have the theory of the case of how to get to them. And they don't do that.
2: They're in-state driven. They say, what do we want to do? We want NATO to break up. We want EU to be weakened. We want an ally in counterterrorism. And we want nationalists, not globalists. How do we get there? Okay, we don't know. Let's Let's move out there, test out the audiences and see who gravitates to this message and with what messages and what messengers. They shoot across the board, right and left politically, all social economic groups, all strata, whoever picks up on it, then they try and turn them against each other. If it doesn't work, and we we'll, we see this now – Uh, Oftentimes in the liberal elite in academia, they'll look at a tweet or something by a Russian IRA account that we know now and say, that was so stupid. No one fell for it. And you know what the answer is? That's right. It was stupid. No one fell for it. And they quit doing it right after it failed. And they doubled down on things that did work.
0: Is it a consequence of our might as a country that we have this you know marketing let's find the user and target the campaign will the will the big country with the resources or the big entity always go in that direction as opposed to the kind of guerrilla marketing that uh the Russians employ
2: part of it is mindsets russia doesn't separate information warfare from warfare it's all just warfare whereas we are always like how do we put a seal team on a rooftop then how do we, you know, win hearts and minds later around it? We are military-led or diplomacy-led in thought. We're not so much information-led. They don't see it that way. Everybody is in sync in their information campaigns because no one sees it as a separate campaign. We're always huddling. We say interagency. You know, well, let's get together. Interagency means no one's in charge, and it's not everyone's top priority. And if there's no budget around it, I'm not going to move.
0: What about the fact that I'm not going to call the United States point-blank ethical, but we're much more ethical and the United States does try to influence elections, but we really don't try as far as I know. We don't try to that extent to influence the elections of democratic, true democratic countries. Does that mean that we're a little lacking in the to-catch-a-thief-you-gotta-think-like-a-thief idea? At no time I've ever seen... The nefarious approach the Kremlin
2: uses on its opponents done by Americans, hacking into hundreds of civilians, dumping their information out on the Internet, uh, corrupting social media platforms, filling people with falsehoods, mind manipulation kind of stuff. Not only does the U.S. not do it, I think we're completely incompetent in doing that. Like we just could not actually facilitate that. You cannot punch back if you don't have your feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. And right now we kind of don't know what we believe in. Our administration is saying things that are very similar to what the Russian government and Putin are saying. So what are you going to push back with? And in the information space, we also get nervous about blowback. The, most messages that come out of Washington, D.C., as counter-influence messages, are mostly shaped to make sure no one at Congress gets upset and the media doesn't tear it apart. That's what is on the mind of people in D.C. If this
0: gets out and it turns out that we did this, how embarrassed will we be? Yep. But the New York it, Times test. If yeah. it shows
2: up in the New York Times, am I going to get crucified? You know, That's really what everyone's focused well, on.
0: Well, I think I'd probably rather live in the country that has something like the New York Times test. Yep. You know, I don't know. It's a way to act morally. I'm for it. You know, in the book I kind of talk about it, and I get to the conclusion where I'm like, maybe it's okay we just suck
2: at this. Like maybe we just don't do it. But other than to stand up for what we believe in, which mm-hmm. if we believe in free democracies, you know, free markets, uh, human rights, then we got to push that. I always tell people we should focus on oligarchs and activists. Make it hard for oligarchs to do business around the world with sanctions. I like that part of what's been going on recently, you know, with our government. Lots of sanctions on these oligarchs as pressure. But then how do we help activists that if they do believe in democracy, human rights? How do we protect journalists who are being killed or suppressed in that country and sort of help them, you know, do their job if that's what we also believe in?
0: Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is – and I think this was the most affecting part of the book. You write about your daughter, Pepper. She has autism. And what's uh, telling about it is you write about it in the context, essentially, of you being a bit duped and falling for fake news. Right. Did you come to that realization because you were concentrating on this book or because you were concentrating on you were thinking about fake news and then you related it to your life? And was it hard to grapple with it on these pages? It was reflection. You know, I I always try to
2: remind people because people like to think that they're never duped. Yeah. And that's nonsense. And that's why I started the book with me duping someone and I wanted to finish the book with me being duped because I think it's important to realize even people that are manipulators, you know, are oftentimes being manipulated and they don't know it. And so – when I was looking at it, I was concerned. I was a first-time dad. I was with another first-time dad. He had brought this to my attention. I knew lots of people about in the middle. About vaccines mo- and autism. Right, about yeah. vaccines and, you know, their connection, maybe it causes autism. I knew I wanted my daughter to have vaccines, but I wanted to mitigate against this. So there was a middle ground, which was if you space the vaccines out, then it's not such a heavy hit, you know, on the child. And so... I investigated it, and, you know, I'm looking on the internet at different sources. I'm trying to see, okay, what might be the thing that I can control? That's a big part of, you know, why you fall for things. Can I control this? Am I in control? Well, I can control my daughter getting her shots spread out rather than in bulk. But when you look at what I was doing, I was confirming, confirmation bias. I can prevent my daughter from having autism. I wanted to do that. I'm confirming. If I do this, she won't have autism. The second part is implicit bias. A person that I trust that looks like me and talks like me tells me about this. I investigate it. His sources seem to make sense, and I go with it. That's the same thing that happens in social media routinely. And so I didn't look at it that way when I was going through it until I had a refutation. And this is where the book sort of concludes is that she gets diagnosed. The first thing the doctor tells me, and this is the ultimate doctor of autism, you need to make sure your daughter gets her shots. We have looked at this exhaustively. I am an expert in this. I can tell you, you know, there's nothing to this. It's more dangerous for her. And I said, okay. It was refuted by a person in my face. And I think that speaks to how we have to deal with fake news. You tend to believe the first thing you hear, that which you hear the most, that thing which is not accompanied by a rebuttal. Yeah. And if it comes from a trusted source. Right. Those four things come together. It's very dangerous. So if we're slipping into these social media cocoons that we're in, that, all four of those things, happens daily.
0: But there there is no equivalent in media of that credentialed doctor who's recognized as the tops in his field who people clamor to get an appointment with.
2: No, and people will refute and discredit them. That's the other thing is they will work to discredit that person if they say something they don't want to hear.
0: Yeah. Messing with the enemy surviving in a social media world of hackers, terrorists, Russians, and fake news. It's an exciting read, and it'll take you places you didn't think you would go. Clint Watts, thanks so much for thanks coming for having in. me back on. And now the spiel. Donald Trump in Singapore today. Tremendous uh, 24 hours. We've had a tremendous three months, actually. Like when you called the meeting off, then put it back on, then wrote a sad letter? That? Tremendous three months? It's my honor today to
1: address the people of the world following this very historic summit with Chairman Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Spent very intensive hours together. And I think most of you have gotten the signed document, or you will very
0: shortly. It's very comprehensive. It is the opposite of comprehensive. It is threadbare and unspecific. It's gonna happen. You have no way of knowing if it's going to happen.
1: I stand before you as an emissary of the American people. That is true. President Xi of China, who has really closed up that border. Oh, so he really has. Maybe a little bit less so over the last couple of months. Oh, so he really
0: hasn't. But that's okay.
1: So he really has. But he really has, and he's a terrific person and a friend of mine. And a, He really isn't. Uh, really a great leader of his people.
0: He's really not. And you really shouldn't say that about an autocrat who, just a couple months ago, decided he could stay in that role for life. Now, I am not going to go line by line and point out all the nonsensical or unfactual things Donald Trump said. I will skip ahead and I will actually, right now, I'll land on a good line in that that speech, in, in the statement.
1: Yesterday's conflict does not have to be tomorrow's war. That's a good line. And as history has proven over and over again,
0: adversaries can indeed become friends. Well, let's think about this. The U.S. certainly is friends with former adversaries. We got our independence from England. Now we have the special relationship with them. Germany, Japan, once enemies, now friends. But in all the cases, the countries are the same, but the government has changed. And the way the governments have changed is to grow more open and democratic. Now, I am not saying, what I'm not saying now is that the United States is only friendly or allied with democratic democracies. The U.S. is, in fact, allied with autocracies like Saudi Arabia, but no country has ever gone from an autocracy that the United States was an enemy of, stayed an autocracy, and then was able to count the United States as an ally. We can have okay relations with autocracies, but how it really works is that the United States is allied and aligned with either... Autocracies we've always been aligned with, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Equatorial Guinea. They haven't changed, but we never asked them to change. Or countries that are now democracies, and maybe some of those countries were once our enemies. Every true ally we have today is either a dictatorship since we started being aligned with them, or is now a democracy if they were once a dictatorship. Okay, back to the statement. There is
1: no limit to what North Korea can achieve when it gives up its nuclear weapons and embraces commerce and engagement with the rest of the
0: world that really wants to engage. So that's the sort of statement that I don't know if it's true, but it's fine for the leader of the free world or even Donald Trump to say it in the promotion of peace, as is the following. Chairman Kim has before him an
1: opportunity like no other be remembered as the leader who ushered in a glorious new era of security and prosperity for his people. Good. Moving on. Chairman Kim and I just signed a joint statement in which he reaffirmed his unwavering commitment to complete denuclearization
0: of the Korean Peninsula. Unwavering. It's been an hour and a half since he actually expressed that commitment to anyone. Unwavering. This isn't the past.
1: This isn't another administration that never got it started
0: and therefore never got it done Now, here's an interesting point. It could be argued that two past presidents were in this exact point. In fact, further along, Bill Clinton was definitely much further along in his talks with North Korea than President Trump is now. Now, Clinton didn't have a grand summit and a televised meeting, but he did have a much more fleshed out agreement than the administration currently does. The North Koreans cheated on that agreement. But right now, there is nothing even in place to begin to cheat on. Chairman Kim has the chance to seize an incredible future for his people. Chairman Kim represents his people in the way a kidnapper with girls in the basement represents his people. Within minutes of claiming to be the representative of the American people, which he is, and attributing to Kim a similar status, that is perverse.
1: It's a very great day. It's a very great moment in the history of the world. And Chairman Kim... He's on his way back to North Korea, and I know for a fact, as soon as he arrives,
0: he's going to start a process that's going to make a lot of people very happy and very safe. Fact. He knows for a fact. A fact or a Trump fact, like the immigration-size fact or the electoral victory-size fact or shipping in voters from Massachusetts, that fact, or I didn't pay Stormy Daniels, fact, or I didn't know about it, fact, or I won't settle for Trump you fact, or the I never wrote that statement on the plane, fact, or nobody knew health care would be so hard fact. It's not that I'm just saying that Trump sometimes stretches the facts. It's that he doesn't know what a fact is. Beyond facts, I wouldn't trust him to get right the dynamic that is underpinning this entire affair. Trump believes that his relationship with Kim is the most important thing. He literally says this. He needs to get to know him. He thinks that's why the meeting needed to happen, and he thinks that's what's going to make peace. But it is not. And it's certainly not how Kim sees the relationship. Why would Kim think the Trump personal touch is important to his security and his survival? He would be a fool to think that. He has seen how often Trump goes back on his word. What he does is he thinks that Trump, because Trump believes that the personal touch is so important, he sees Trump as providing an opening. And since Kim isn't a fool, he's smart to take that opening. Why would Kim, who's 34 and has every aim to be in power for the rest of his life, why would he think it's so important to have a personal relationship with a 70-year-old man who may be out of office in a little over two years and will definitely be out of office in at least a little over six years? There is no way that Kim has put as much, if any, importance in his personal relationship with Donald Trump as Donald Trump puts it with Kim. And since Donald Trump also tore up the Iran deal, why wouldn't Kim know that he did that, know that an American president to do that, and is just smiling and playing along with the assertion that personal touch means everything? Look. If you have terrible relations with someone that you're trying to do a deal with or make an alliance with, that can hurt things. But the great alliances, the lasting alliances, do not rest on the personal relations between those crafting the alliance. The Treaty of Westphalia did not come down to if King Philip II of Spain got along with the Dutch Republic. King Philip II didn't even go to the negotiations. In South Africa, Nelson Mandela and Botha won the Nobel Prize Prize. Do you think they liked each other? They had a personal touch with each other? They got along enough to see where their interests aligned. That is how Kim is looking at this interaction. It's not how Trump is looking at this interaction. If you think that it sounds that I'm a little bit summit skeptical, I am. But I do think in assessing this historic and grand moment that skeptical beats spectacle every time. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé produces The Gist. Now, produces The Gist means he has an uncle who bought a library for The Gist. Mary Wilson is The Gist's senior producer. In this case, senior producer means she spends most of her time on eBay shopping for Hummel figurines. Steve Licktie is executive producer of Slate Podcast. That means he's the only one who's able to make eye contact with Willa Paskin. And he gets to decide, and he alone, whether Plots gets tomatoes or beets in his salad. The gist. As you know, the gist means getting right to the point of things in a succinct manner. Yeah, how's that for Orwellian jargon? Oomperoo du pru, and thanks for listening.